You've probably heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know that old adage, and you know if you've heard it before, whether you've thought about it or not, you know it's a lie. (laughs) It's not true. Words can hurt people. Words do hurt people. Words that you have said at some point in time to somebody has hurt somebody. Words that I've said at some point in time to somebody has hurt somebody. Words do have significant impact on people's lives, and we see that painted very vividly, not only by way of texts that declare it very overtly, but examples vividly painted in the Scriptures. For example, the words that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, spoke to the people of Israel led to the divided kingdom. Just words that he spoke. First Kings 12, you can see it. He spoke words to the people. He didn't take the advice of the elders. He took the advice of the younger people around him. And he spoke words. And there you have it. The kingdom is split. Yes, it was from the Lord and his sovereignty. You see that in the chapter as well. But words can make a significant impact on people's lives. The words of the false witnesses in First Kings 21 led to the death of a man named Naboth. The words that they spoke. The words of Nabal communicated through messengers of David. David sent messengers to Nabal. Nabal gave an answer back to David's messengers. They came back and told David what Nabal said, and it sent David into such a fit of rage that had it not been for Abigail and the words that she spoke in God's providence through her, you see in 1 Samuel 25, David calls attention to both. The words that she spoke to him and God's providence in it. If it were not for her and the words that she spoke, David would have killed every male in Nabal's household. Words can dramatically impact people's lives for better or for worse. Now conversely, the absence of words can do harm as well. See, it's not just the words that we speak that can have a positive impact on people's lives or a negative impact. The words that we don't speak can as well. Personally, David, Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, he said because he kept silent, because he had not confessed his sin, he was groaning. He was deprived of physical vitality all day long. You see that in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Although God intervened, Abraham's purposeful avoidance of telling Pharaoh on one occasion and Ahimelech on another occasion that Sarah was his wife almost led to adultery. The absence of words. When David brought back his banished son Absalom, he didn't see his face for two years. 2 Samuel 14, verse 28. Interesting, you read on from there. Absalom, apparently uh, tired of the silent treatment, decided to try to get David's attention by first getting Joab's attention. So he burned Joab's field. So as to get Joab's attention, Joab is like, what's going on? Absalom basically says, I want an audience with David. He finally gets an audience with his father, all of which led to a lackluster, in my opinion, a very lackluster reconciliation and was a precursor to Absalom's treason. See, the words spoken or unspoken can dramatically affect people's lives. I've seen different counts. Counts that the average person speaks somewhere between 15,000 to 17,000 words a day. I've seen lower and I've seen higher. But either way, however you slice it, there are a lot of words that we are speaking every day. Every day. You have stewardship of certain things over your life. You have stewardship, and it's temporary over your life on this earth. You have stewardship of time. You have stewardship of the resources that God gives you. Every one of you will have a certain amount of resources that God gives you over the course of your life. It's a stewardship, and every one of us will have a certain amount of words that we're allowed to say while we're on this side of eternity. And it's a stewardship. And how we use those words can either can either be tremendous opportunities seized for good, or there can also be a lot of opportunities where words are deployed that ought to have stayed in our mouths. And there'll be many words that are like empty calories. They're ingested by the hearer, but they contain no nutrients. And then there are words that we should have said that we didn't say. So there's a lot to consider. Now, the kind of outline for our consideration of this subject today, the subject of communication, will be this. First, we're going to see the doctrinal lens through which we ought to see the subject of communication. Now, there's so much I could say about this, but I decided to hone in on the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. In light of who God is, how ought we to communicate? And are we even to be you know, communicative? And I would say, in light of who God is... The answer to that latter question is yes. And then we're going to see 
We're going to consider what we say, too often don't say, and then how we say what we say. So first, if a fundamental priority that we have as people and Christians is to image God rightly, being communicative, I would argue, is a necessary part of that equation because God is indeed communicative with us as people. So I'll say that again just so as to grab that, so we can grab that. If a fundamental priority that we have as Christians is to image God rightly, yes, people are made in the image of God, but because of sin, that image is marred. We are to be renewed, and we are to be renewed in our minds, and we are to image our Creator better and better. And if we are to image our Creator better and better, if we are to image Him rightly, I would argue that being communicative is a necessary part of that equation because God is indeed communicative with us, His people. He has given us His Word through which He continues to speak. A biblical basis for that would be in Matthew 22, verse 31. I want you to understand that the Scriptures are not only what God has said, but what God has said in the Scriptures is what God continues to say. You might recall Jesus when He's speaking to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, verse 31, where prior to quoting Exodus 3, 6, He tells them, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? It was originally spoken to Moses in Exodus 3, then to the first readers of Exodus. But Jesus is telling the Sadducees in Matthew 22.31, Have you not read what God has spoken to you? So it's not just what the Scriptures said is what God said, but what the Scriptures have said is what God is saying. God continues to speak through His Word. Continues to speak. For starters, I think we should consider the communicative lengths that God has gone to, if you will, to communicate His love for us. God has communicated to us in no uncertain terms that He loves His people. He communicates to us, He has in His Word, the depths of His affection. He tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. His love is so great, nothing can separate you from it when you are in Christ Jesus. He tells us in Ephesians 3.19 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. That we cannot know the heights and the depths and the breadth and the width of God's love. He's communicating His love. We read John exclaim, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. First half of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. We're essentially told that God loved us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 and Ephesians 1.5, chose us before the foundation of the world, 1.4, predestined us in love, 1.5, and then we're told that our Savior loves us present tense, Revelation 1.5, to Him who loves us. And that's just a sampling. God has gone to great communicative lengths to make sure that His people are not like banished sons and daughters who when they come back get the silent treatment and then have to wonder indefinitely whether or not God actually loves them. No, He has gone to great lengths to communicate to you in multiple texts, in multiple books of the Bible to let you know that He indeed loves you, son or daughter of God. And the entirety of the Bible is filled with truth that God has communicated to us. God has communicated to us the way of salvation. He's told us what our problem is. It's us. (laughs) It's sin. He's told us what the solution is. Christ, His Son. He's communicated that. He's told us the means by which we could be forgiven. By grace, through faith because of what Christ has done. He's told us that. He's told us things that He loves. Psalm 33, verse 5, for instance, He loves righteousness and judgment. Righteousness and justice. And He's told us things that He hates. Some examples of which are found in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, a proud look, and so on. To sum it up, He has told you, O man, what is good use language from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So he doesn't restore the banished ones and give them the silent treatment, nor does he leave us wondering about the depths of his affection. I would argue it's in light of who God is and that communicative characteristic. It's part of just who he is. 
He's holy. He's just. He's good. And we've seen that He is communicative. He has communicated with us. He's not the great just unknown, the great abyss that we just walk around as people and we have no idea who the Creator is, what He is like, what He loves, what He hates, what He wants from us. No. He has gone to great lengths to tell us who He is, what He wants, the way in which we can be reconciled to Him, what He has done, and the depths of His love. Amazing. So I would argue, in light of that, in light of who God is, in light of who He is to us, if we are going to image Him better and better and reflect Him well, we have to grow in the grace of being communicative and communicating properly as we ought to. So now I want to move from there to further establish the need for communication. The need for communication. I think it's important to establish the need for communication, and I think that includes words of affection, words of instruction, words that bring about comfort and edification, words that bring about correction and restoration. I think there's a biblical basis for all of those. I think there's a biblical basis for all of those. We'll see scriptures that overtly or implicitly call for communication in marriage, communication from parents to children, communication for the purposes of edification, correction, and restoration in the body of Christ. So we're going to cover a lot of subject matter in a small amount of time. And we're going to hit some highlights uh, with regards to the different relationships that we have in our lives. I'll start with just saying some things with regards to marriage. In marriage, husbands ought to be communicative with their wives And wives ought to be communicative with their husbands. Now, one of the places, I think, my opinion, one of the best places to see this is in the Song of Solomon, an often forgotten book. Many have said that Jude is like the forgotten book of the New Testament. I might argue that, you know, maybe alongside of Obadiah, that Song of Solomon is a forgotten book of the Old Testament. And I think in the Song of Solomon, we learn a lot about what an ideal marriage relationship ought to look like. Now, for those who, who come to the conclusion and look at it and say, the Song of Solomon is written by Solomon, sometimes you can get tripped up by that, right? You're like, really? I'm going to learn from the guy who had 700 wives and 300 concubines? And I would just say this, just as a little bit of an aside, what might be happening in that case? Maybe early on in his life, he wrote Song of Solomon. There are those who would argue the, the authorship issue there. But assuming it's Solomon, there would be some who would say, maybe he wrote it early on in his life, on the occasion of his first marriage. It's a possibility. Maybe he also wrote it later on in life, after he had become jaded. And he saw what he had, and he saw that for whatever reason, maybe for political reason and making marriages that led to alliances with other nations. And he kind of saw what he had and the ideal that he never lived up to, or at least didn't preserve for long. That's a possibility. I do find it rather interesting that when you get to Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, he does say, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your, albeit, I add albeit, vain life which he has given you under the sun. It doesn't say live joyfully with your wives. So some people get tripped up by that and they never see the beautiful picture that is painted there. And it's a beautiful picture. I think it has a lot of instruction for husbands and wives. So early on in the book, we begin to see exchanges of verbal affirmation, uh, exchanges of terms of endearment. So in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15, we see the beloved, perhaps Solomon, say, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. To which the wife-to-be, the Shulamite, responds, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. It's not information, it's not simply information, it is information, but it's painting a picture for us because that kind of thing happens throughout the book. I'm not going to exposit the entirety of the Song of Solomon, but that happens in the premarital phase of their relationship when they're being extra careful to make sure that love does not blossom before its time, to make sure that they don't go beyond places, go beyond the, the boundaries that they are supposed to, but they're having that kind of communication before marriage, but they're also having that communication during marriage. They have that communication also after they have their first marital spat of one kind or another as well. Interesting. In chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, you see it basically through chapter 6, verse 3. They have their first marital problem. Some argue that it's represented by a dream. Uh, Whatever the case may be, you see that after they get through their first marital issue, they're back to communicating. 
Solomon says to her, Oh, my love, you are beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem. And speaking of these cities, these cities that were highly regarded, especially Jerusalem, regarded as impressive, he's basically telling her, post their fight, after their spat, you are impressive, you are amazing. He tells her that she's awesome as an army with banners. I've never used that before, but I might, I might coming up in the days ahead. Again, the idea is impressive. So making the connection between her and cities, a little bit of an aside, possibly anticipating how John says in Revelation 21.2 that he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He goes on, he says more loving things to her. He says, turn your eyes away from me, for you, or for they have overcome me. As though to say, your eyes are so beautiful when you look at me, I just feel like overcome by them. I feel won over by them. And he says a lot more. He tells her that although there are so many women out there, you see this in chapter 6, verse 8, she was his preferred one, the only one for him. And by the way, I think this is also interesting. If you look at the example of the marital spat that they have, he's the one who seems to be in this context the offended party. And I love that this picture of reconciliation that happens has him communicating all these terms of endearment and affection to her, not kind of putting her in a position to have to do penance. Like just telling her over and over again, you're going to treat me like that? Am I going to be at the lattice of the window and you're not going to get up to see me? Is that what's going to happen? He's not doing that. He's quickly, everything's restored, they're back to a place of health, and he's communicating affection to her without holding her offense over her head. Remind you of a perfect bridegroom, anyone? The Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, you'll see this too. He goes on to describe his wife and enumerates a, uh, a longer list of descriptions that describe her beauty than when they were even initially married. As though to possibly connote that by the grace of God, that as one matures in the marriage, there should be a growing in communication. What a picture for us. What a picture. So I say, husbands, as it relates to communication, affirm your wives. Don't let someone else tell them, to use language from the Song of Solomon, your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> you tell your wife your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> you might want to use something a little more contemporary. It was a compliment in that, in that time, in that culture. But the idea is you say it. You say it. You tell her. Tell her. Tell her what you love about her. Tell, tell her the things that you appreciate about her. We'll get to some roadblocks, right? I'm not going to get there yet, but there are roadblocks to communication, and this will be one of them. I'll address it in a moment. She knows I love her. Yeah, okay, okay, fair enough. Tell her anyway. Tell her anyway. God tells us in so many ways that he loves us. And I would say to wives, I would say wives, image the church who ought to be communicating with the Savior in prayer, right? Marriage is a theater to display the gospel, in that theater, husbands are to properly represent Christ in the marriage and wives are to represent the church. So wives, even as we ought to be communing and speaking to our Savior in prayer in the marriage, be communicative with your husband. And if you need some encouragement, look at Song of Solomon. You see both parties speaking to one another. What about parents and children? I'll just address this um, briefly. Um, beyond the communication that ought to be happening in the marriage, there, of course, ought to be communication among parents with their children. Now, now, again, I think the fundamental basis for this is founded in our relationship with God. God, our Father, has communicated to us. He teaches us. He listens to us, right? He's taught us to pray so that we could talk to Him. We're told to pray without ceasing. So as a Father, He instructs us. He speaks to us through the Word of God. But then he also invites us to be speaking to him. We know that he also addresses bad behavior. We know that there are also consequences for bad behavior. So that would go just beyond communication. Just as an aside, and this is helpful. You look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli, right? Who had sons that were causing the people of Israel to stumble. They were committing heinous sins by the tabernacle. Yeah, Eli talked to them about it. But he didn't do anything about it. There were no consequences. 
So we're talking about communication, communication of affection, communication of instruction, re requesting somebody to communicate with you, as a, a, your children to communicate with you, and so on. But just remember, by way of parenting, you don't want to be like Eli. You don't just want to call attention to a bad thing. That's good. But as a parent, there are to be loving and appropriate consequences for bad behavior. As a father, God communicates to us affection. He teaches his children, and so we ought to be doing those things as well. Now, there ought to be also communication among the members of the body of Christ. We are to be growing in the grace of being communicative with one another, and we'll consider many of the dynamics of this. Some of the communication that we ought to have. Staying along the lines of affection, I want us to briefly consider the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul would say things in like 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So immediate context aside, we do see in a place like Philippians 3.17 that he would say something very similar. He would say, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. A pattern. And one of the patterns of behavior that we could overlook from the Apostle Paul, I think, is the way in which he communicated affection and care and brotherly love to different members of the body of Christ. It's amazing. You're not only supposed to learn from Paul the doctrine that he teaches. You are to learn from that. But there's an example in him that you are to admire. He's an imperfect example. He's not the perfect example, but he's an imperfect person following the perfect example, and he becomes an example for us per Philippians 3.17, 1 Corinthians 11.1. And I think we see some examples I want to call your attention to here. Look at the way he communicated to brethren like Timothy what he wrote to Philemon, what he wrote to the churches like Philippi. If you were just to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at how he's communicating to this son in the faith. He calls him a beloved son, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. He told Timothy he thanked God for him. So it's not just that he thanked God personally, and Timothy never knew about it. He told Timothy that. He told Timothy that he remembered him in prayer night and day, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He also told him that seeing him, that he greatly desired to see him, and that seeing him would bring him joy. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He also instructed him and exhorted him. Stir up the gift of God that which is in you. A little bit later on, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And the examples could go on. I love you. I think about you. I'm desiring to see you. I thank God for you. And don't forget, stir up the gift of God which is in you. Don't be ashamed of me, nor of the, the gospel, or, or, me, or me, the Lord's prisoner, and so on. You look at what he wrote to Philemon. When writing to Philemon, Paul called Onesimus, my own heart. Philemon, verse 12. He told the Philippians, the church as a whole, he said, I have you in my heart. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. He would go on in verse 8 and he says, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So see, Paul was communicative. If you were just with Paul, and you were with him when he was writing these letters, if you were there with Timothy when he received those letters from the Apostle Paul, you would see love communicated. And I think that's meant to rub off on us, that we are to be communicative by God's grace. Yes, Paul was instructive, he was forthright, he was doctrinal, but he was also affectionate and filled with Christian love, and the people that he cared for knew it. So briefly, briefly, let me just call attention to some roadblocks to communication. Okay, so you could be hearing this, and you could be saying, okay, that's good, I like it, I like that God's communicative, I get what you're saying about the Apostle Paul, but, to use the example I just used before, people know that I love them. And I would say, that is great. That is great. You're, you're, you've got a great foundation to work with if the people that you love do know that you love them, but don't take that for granted. Let them know over and over again that you love them and that you appreciate them. Appreciate them. Somebody else might say, I'm not a talker. I get the whole thing about being communicative, I am not a talker. And I would say to you, great. That will make it all the more precious when they hear you speak. <laughs> right? Like, wow, that person, I know him, I know her. She's not a talker, but communicating to me that there is affection, love, and appreciation. Somebody else might say, listen, when I tell them, whether it's the, my wife or whether it's a wife saying when I tell my husband or whether it's you know, parents with regards to children or whoever, they might say, 
they don't respond. And so what could happen with people sometimes is they stop doing it because they say, I'm doing it, and I'm not getting back what I want to get back. And I would encourage you in multiple, multiple ways. First, I would say, how many times has God spoken to you through his word, through the exposition of a text, through your reading of scripture, and you've said nothing or so little to him? Right? Imagine, like you're reading the word of God, God's speaking to you, and you're done, and you go, close it, and you're off to something else. How many times has that happened? Yet when you open it, he continues to speak to you. What grace, what love. So even if people don't respond the way that you would hope they would respond, even if your husband or your wife doesn't respond the way you want them to respond, you, having your cup filled up by the love of God who communicates to you, you are going to, by the grace of God, continue to image God. It's a little bit of an aside, but one of the things that helps me is thinking of the Holy Spirit, being sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That I could grieve the Holy Spirit, yet He stays. There's a consistency in God that just makes me appreciate His grace. In light of that, not an apples to apples comparison, I would encourage you, may there be a consistency wrought in you where you communicate grace, communicate endearment, communicate, tell them. Tell them. Okay. Um, I want to address here now uh, the communication that can sometimes be left out. Because there is communication that can easily be left out and it ought not to be um, left out. I'm going to give you some examples of this. I'm going to begin in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. In Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, we read, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now this proverb sets forward an often forgotten barometer of true friendship. Namely, love that manifests itself in a rebuke for good. This is the communication. Now the other communication can get overlooked, right? There could be wives that love their husbands but never tell their husbands how much they love them. There could be husbands that love their wives never tell their wives how much they love them, and so on. Oh, that communication could be overlooked, but in the corporate local church context, here is a kind of communication that can get overlooked, and we don't want it to get overlooked. We want to understand that it is actually a often forgotten true barometer of true friendship. So in verse 5, we're told an open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Now, an open rebuke could take the, con- could take the, the form of say what the Apostle Paul did with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Where Peter's behavior demanded the confrontation and there needed to be an open rebuke. And as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, he had to withstand Peter to the face. It was an act of love. It was good for Peter. It was good for the reputation of Christ. It was good for the gospel. It was an open rebuke. But most commonly, I think that open rebuke would refer to the kind of thing that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 18, verse 15. I'll read the text in in a little while, but when you go to somebody who's offended you and you tell them that they have offended you or sinned against you, you go to them. More about that in a moment. Such forthrightness, that kind of forthrightness that doesn't stew on a matter for countless days, nor endlessly justifies the withholding of such a conversation, right? That's what you want, this kind of frankness right here. Right? You don't just want to stew on it. Think about scriptures. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But there's certain times people can justify letting the sun go down over and over and over again on their wrath. But what they do is they just say, ah, it's just not wrath. I'm just really upset and frustrated about it, but I'm going to categorize it as something different so I never have to have the conversation I don't want to have. So I'm going to categorize it differently. I may be frustrated. I may be upset. But as long as before the sun goes down or before I lay my head on the pillow, I categorize it as something different, I am not disobeying that scriptural command. Don't do that. Don't do that. Such a conversation, when you actually do have it, Proverbs 27 verse 5 says, it's better than love carefully concealed. Why? What's the problem with love carefully concealed? It's of no use. It's of no use. True love brings with it a kind of communicative frankness. And love devoid of that is not as good as an open rebuke. I think Eric Lane put it very well in his commentary on the Proverbs when he wrote, and he's got multiple parentheses here with scripture verses, but I'll just read the um, the statements. 
He who sees the fault should not be afraid to tell the other. In three um, passages he has right there in parentheses. And he who is rebuked should receive it as a mark of love. In fact, the love God himself shows us. So to kind of make your way to, to, to verse 6 of Proverbs 27, the kisses of an enemy might feel good for a moment, but they are deceitful and they don't lead anywhere good. The wounds of a friend, say via an open rebuke, may not feel good in the moment, but they lead to good. Now David, for all of his foibles, for all of his problems, he knew that. So in Psalm 141, verse 5, he said, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. In other words, it's going to be a kind deed done to me. It's going to be a mark of true friendship. So he says, let the righteous strike me, it shall be kindness. He goes on and he says, and let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. As one commentator said, a symbol of honor to a welcome guest. And he goes on and he says, let not my head refuse it. And we know oftentimes the tendency of our heads is to refuse it because it doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't feel good. But if we have a biblical view of what it actually is and the good that it is and the barometer of true friendship that it is, we're going to be more apt to receive it. Now, when such communication gets overlooked or is left undone, it can lead to other sins. And I want to call your attention to another passage. The second greatest commandment that we love our neighbor as ourself is found within a context that I think is often overlooked. and It deals with this very subject. Reading from Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, we hear the following. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if a brother or sister or Christ, I'm going to apply it immediately to the local church context. If a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, it behooves you to tell them. To tell them. Jesus taught this. Matthew 18, 15. He said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I'll read the entirety of the passage shortly, but Jesus also instructs the believer what to do if step one doesn't yield the desired result of acknowledgement and contrition. So Jesus outlines essentially four steps. We'll get to those in a moment rather briefly. But these verses from Leviticus call attention to some of the heart risks associated with not addressing the issue. Right? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. In other words, when a wrong is committed, when somebody has wronged you, whether inadvertently, whether intentionally, whatever it might be, what could happen is that you start to harbor resentment. You start to harbor frustration. And you think you have it under control. You think you're suppressing it. But what, it, what it's actually doing, it's corroding you and you don't know it. You have to get it out. It's not only good for you, it's good for them. They need that. They need somebody to tell them that. It's also good for somebody else who might be on the receiving end of the very thing that you are on the receiving end of. So you're not supposed to store it up inside such a one who did it either unintentionally, inadvertently, or intentionally is to be addressed so that you don't end up going to a place of bitterness, resentment, or hatred. To not do so and to become bitter is to bear sin because of him or her. And just as an aside, I would say, in light of 2 Samuel, it's to be Absalom-like. It's to be Absalom-like. Absalom's brother committed a heinous crime against his sister. And Absalom didn't address him. Kept silent. But he hated him in his heart. And eventually, that kind of murderous desire in his heart, wherever on the spectrum it was there, eventually made its way all the way to the other side of the spectrum, if you will, and he killed his brother. So don't keep it to yourself. You go to others and you tell them that is kindness to the offender. It's not only kindness to the offender, it's obedience to Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That potentially stops the person from committing the same offense against others, all of which is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's part of how you love not like Cain, to use language from 1 John 3. And you act in a certain way an appropriately measured sense as your brother's keeper. 
not the ultimate keeper of your brother, but in a certain and measured sense as one who looks out for your brother and sister because you love them and you know you need that kind of thing from them as well. So as to further expound upon that, note the mode of procedure within the church. Jesus outlines the mode of procedure. I'll go through this rather quickly and make some comments along the way. In Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Quick note, that's the goal. The goal is restoration. It's not vengeance. It's not to give somebody a hard time. You know, there could be people who like love confrontation and they kind of look for that's no, this is that's not the goal. The goal is restoration, reconciliation. But Jesus goes on, but if he will not hear. So if he disagrees or he doesn't think he's done something something wrong, if he's not sorry about it, etc., well then Jesus says, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Kind of working out the principle of Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And that's so helpful. Because sometimes with other people in the room, things get ironed out easily. Maybe the person who thought they were offended weren't actually offended. Maybe they thought they were sinned against and they weren't sinned against. Maybe they actually were. And that seems to be the posture that Jesus is assuming here more often than not. And you can address it and try to help the other person see it. Again, the goal is to win your brother. The goal is restoration, reconciliation, love and peace and harmony. That's the goal. That's the goal. But Jesus provides step three. He says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. That's where things are to go. And so often they never go there. Now, oftentimes what happens in a local church is that if step two doesn't work out, somebody involved in step two actually just ends up leaving the church, which is sad. Because then they go somewhere else, and if you don't know where they went, they could just end up having interactions there and never actually have what needed to be ironed out, ironed out. Whatever character issue in them that could have been addressed and worked out, maybe through the church and brothers and sisters seeing not stones being picked up to be cast at them, but love from the body of Christ saying, no, look, we love you. Look, we think you were wrong in that case, but it doesn't mean we don't love you. It doesn't mean we don't appreciate you, but that's what's meant to happen. Again, what's the goal even when it's brought to the church? It's not public you know, execution. That's not the goal. The goal is restoration. The goal is to win the brother or sister over. But if that doesn't happen, if he refuses to hear the, even the church, Jesus says, let him be to you a, like a heathen and a tax collector in that cultural context, somebody who wouldn't be keeping company with the Jewish people by and large. Excommunication. Now, I want to give some quick notes here why, uh, with regards to why wouldn't someone do this. If this is the prescription, why is it so often easily overlooked? Right? Why does the Proverbs 27 verses 5 and 6 passage not really happen all too much? And people kind of keep things to themselves and they never talk about it to somebody else, but they might be tempted to talk to other people about it. Why does that happen? Well, the pulpit commentary suggests two possibilities. Bitterness or cowardice. Those are two legitimate possibilities. I'll suggest some others as well. Love of comfort, right? We're just so used to comfort that whenever there's something that would infringe upon comfort, we, we cringe with regards to anything that would infringe upon comfort. Now, I'd rather not do that. That's going to be hard. I'd rather not do that. Put it off to another day. I'd rather not do that. I think we could unknowingly esteem the matter itself, the command of Christ in the Scriptures, and the brother at fault is not important. Well, then what's more important? My ease? My comfort? I think these are the hard truths that we have to actually kind of reckon with when we put these things off. I think also we could be deceived um, out of the thought of procrastination. Right? I think if you just procrastinate, you could justify in your mind, I have no problem with that. I would love to have that meeting. I would love to have that encounter. We're just going to do it another time. And you do that long enough, and you always feel like, I have no problem with keeping that command. I would love to keep that command. And I would encourage you, don't be deceived by procrastination. Don't be deceived by it. Now finally, as we get um, closer to closing, I want to just quickly say a few notes about how we say what we say. 
So far, seeing God is communicative, I want you to be exhorted to be communicative in your relationships. Gave you some examples with regards to affection. There are others. Well, edification, instruction, all of those things. We've seen the instruction or the communication that so often gets overlooked, that if somebody offends somebody else, that they just don't talk to them, kind of give them the silent treatment, go your other way, and never actually work it out the problem. But I also want to say there are some things that the Scripture says to note about how we say what we say. So some quick notes on this. First, our words are to be careful. Our words are to be careful. Proverbs 15.28 says, The heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Have you ever heard, or maybe somebody's told you, you should think before you speak. I think probably in our lives, all of us have been on the receiving end of a statement like that. There's a biblical basis for that. Proverbs 15.28 The righteous studies how to answer. It's like the heart of the righteous exercises real-time governance over his or her speech. They know words are serious, so they want to take careful inventory of the words that might come out. So they're conscientious and they're considerate with the way that they answer. In that proverb, the wicked, not so much. They throw caution to the wind. There's not restraint. The mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. It's not restrained. It just comes out. So first, our words are to be careful. Second, our words should be kind and not harsh. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So a a, a soft word uh, is going to turn away wrath, generally speaking. It's going to calm somebody down. It's going to bring tensions lower. That's what it's going to do. A soft word is going to kind of be like a fire extinguisher. Whereas harsh words are going to be like fire starters. You speak harshly to somebody, even if you're saying like something nice, but you start, you start saying it nice, because that would be kind of weird. You start saying something to somebody, you say it in a harsh tone. What it is, it's more like starting a fire. It's like fanning a flame. We don't want to do that. And what you might find, and easily um, not notice, that there's a lot of scripture in the New Testament as well that speaks about the tone that we are to have in all different kind of contexts. Let's give you some examples of this briefly. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, it hit him like a wave, right? Like he wasn't looking, he was looking somewhere else, and all of a sudden the wave hit him. It's like he got overtaken in a trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That doesn't mean you water down the truth. That doesn't mean that you hold back the truth. It just means that you do it in a way that's gentle. You're mindful that you yourself are still in a fallen frame and you yourself still sin. You are a forgiven, reconciled sinner who is helping another brother or sister in Christ, a forgiven, reconciled sinner, help them out of a trespass. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, when we are to sanctify Jesus in our hearts as Lord and to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you, that we are to do it with meekness and fear. So even when you're giving a reason for the gospel, you're essentially doing evangelism, you are to do so with a meekness, a kind of considerate gentleness, a, a, a sense of not viewing yourself as you know, so great, I'm, I, I'm great and, and, and you're not, none of that, there's a humility there. So when you're restoring somebody, you're seeking to help somebody, and when you're sharing the gospel, gentleness, gentleness. Paul, talking to Timothy, how it, this would have immediate application to pastors um, by extension, says the following, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. So even dealing with those who are in opposition to the truth, there is to be gentleness exercised. One more example, a call for all in the body of Christ. Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And there's more. Our communication, third, our communication should be controlled. Uh, Proverbs ten nineteen: In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains lips is wise. So you don't want to disperse words recklessly. Sometimes if, if you talk and you're not mindful of somebody else, whether or not you're actually wanting to do this, it could connote selfishness, that the other person's not going to get to say something, and it could connote that you don't want to hear it. You don't want to do that. So you want to use restraint in the words that you speak. 
Fourth, our communication should build others up. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Interesting word in the Greek there for corrupt. Sapros. It's a word that means rotten or spoiled or putrid. You might imagine, like my, my wife and I and, and our kids, we got to see uh, towards the end of the season uh, a bunch of apple trees uh, at a farm in Jersey with the apples, and most of them were rotten. It's pretty disturbing to see. Some were good, but most of them were rotten. And when you see that, it's like, ooh, that's gross. I wouldn't want to eat that. And Paul's saying, make sure when you speak, that rotten fruit doesn't come out of your mouth. Because you don't want people to eat that. They don't want to eat that. You don't want them to eat that. So be careful. Put a restraint on it to make sure it doesn't come out. What should come out? Well, Paul says, but what is good for necessary edification. There's that word that we study towards the end of Jude, right? Building up people that it may impart grace to the hearers. Some help, some comfort, some instruction. Well, I close in light of what we've considered with communication. I close with just asking this question then. Okay, what do we do? So if you've heard that instruction and you say, you know what, I, I, I see the good and the bad that words can do. I see the, problem that, the problems that can come with the absence of words that ought to be spoken. I, I see the problem that can come with a tone. What do I do? I want to give you three things that I would encourage you to do. Really, at the end of the day, four. Four things. First, I would say follow the example of David in Psalm 19 and pray about it. If you heard this moment, if you heard this moment, something that has prodded your heart, yeah, I, I need to grow in grace in that area. Don't just let it go. Pray about it. Psalm 19, verse 14, the beginning of that verse says, David's praying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Question, you can answer, answer it honestly in your heart. If you prayed about this matter for 30 days, do you honestly think nothing would change? Do you think the needle would not move in your heart at all? I would say regardless of the time frame, the biblical example before us reminds us to pray. And David's prayer gets to the root of the issue, right? Our sinful speech doesn't begin with our speech. It begins with our hearts. That's why David is saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Because what comes out of our mouths, right? Think of the scripture, think of what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So where does the issue have to be addressed most foundationally? In our hearts. In our hearts. Interestingly, that word acceptable there is often used with respect to sacrifices in the Old Testament. What a way to look at your thoughts and words. Think about that. The words that you speak and the thoughts in your minds, you want them to be like offerings that are presented to God. So if you see, an, if you see something that's about to be offered to God in your mind and you're like, I don't want to offer this to God, you say, I'm going to take that thought captive. I don't want to think about that. I want to offer him something else, something that's praise, uh, praise-provoking in my own heart and praiseworthy of him. Second, I would say hide God's word in your heart. Hide God's word in your heart. If communication is a struggle for you, taking the passages that are in the bulletin and seeking to memorize them, committing them to memory, I think is a great way to have God's truth direct and restrain your communication. Having the word in your heart. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. So you get the word of God in your heart, and the heart of the wise, because the word of God is in it, teaches the mouth. So you want the word of God in your heart. Now many of you, I could say, tell me how you would share the gospel with somebody and how you would share the way of salvation. Certain scriptures would come to your mind. You'd say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that word prepares you for evangelistic appointments. But what about those scriptural texts that would teach you about how to guard your tongue? This is a great opportunity to commit those to memory. Third, I would say get a grip on the subject. Get a grip on the subject. I'll share with you what I mean by this. I was reading a book called Meditation uh, on Preaching. And it might be Meditations on Preaching. And uh, I came across a portion that I thought would be helpful for all of us with regards to this subject and our communication better being seasoned with grace. So let the words that he's applying to preachers in their preaching apply to you in this endeavor. Grip your subject. Get a firm hold upon it, then plunge into it. Go at it as if you meant business. Keep it well in hand. Don't lose sight of it for a moment. And don't let anything intrude that will divert your attention. 
And the reason why I share that with you is because you can hear a message like this, and too often our interest will be piqued for a moment, and as a result, if it's only for a moment, we don't hammer the nails of biblical truth into our hearts so that God's truth is placarded there so that we might be reminded continually of the truth that we heard. So get a grip on the subject. Hold it. You don't want this to be like, okay, this, this met me. I needed this in this moment. I need this instruction. You don't want it to be like a course of antibiotics where you just take one today and you don't finish out the course. Finish out the course. Hide the Word of God in your heart and let the Holy Spirit apply that Word and renew your mind and let the Word of God do the work. So I would say get a grip on the subject. Grip it so tightly. Let the Word continue to work, impacting and illuminating your heart, which will ultimately affect your speech. And finally, I close with this. Let the joy of knowing that all of the sins that you have committed with your speech and all of the sins that you have committed by way of omission, of not speaking things that you ought to have spoken, if you are in Christ, all of those sins have been paid for via the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what drives this. You're not going to have to give an account for every idle word that you've ever spoken on the day of judgment. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. They have been paid for. That is the greatest motivation to steward your speech. That Christ died not only for bad behavior and the wrong things that we've done and so on, but for every evil word and idle word that we have spoken That, I would argue, is the greatest motivation to pursue honoring Him with your tongue. That's what this is about. At the end of the day, it's about Him. It's about Christ. It's about saying, He bought me, and the Father bought me with the blood of the Son. Christ bought me with His blood. My whole self belongs to Him, and that includes my speech. So as unto Him, the one who died for my sins and rose for the grave, therefore I want to guard my speech and use my speech for His glory and for the good of His people and for the good of others more and more. That's what's driving you. That's what's driving you. It's a pursuit unto Him. It's a response to the grace of the Gospel. It's a response to the love of the Father. It's an outworking of divine grace to the glory of God's name for the good of the church and for others. Amen. 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 May it be, brethren. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for how... Gracious You are to have communicated so much to us, Lord. The way of salvation, the greatness of Your love, Your character and Your attributes, the reality of our sinfulness, what You have secured and promised for us in Christ Jesus. How gracious You are to have communicated such blessed things to us. Well, Father, in light of that, we do ask that by Your grace, Lord, You would help us grow in the grace of being communicative, And then communicating how we ought to communicate. Not leaving unsaid what ought to be said. And Father, doing so in such a way where having had a good grip on the subject and seeking to honor You and to glorify Christ with our our lives and our speech, that we might grow in that grace. Having by Your grace good fruit coming out. And when, Heavenly Father, we see ourselves wanting to uh, avoid what should not be avoided or say what ought not to be said, we trust that by Your grace, through Your Word and by Your Spirit, You will help us to restrain such things, to mortify such things, to take such thoughts captive, and then by Your grace, to do what might glorify You. And may it all be an outworking, not of some kind of um, legalistic speech endeavor, but may it be in all an outworking of grace, grace, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. May that drive, Father, uh, the endeavor of your people to get a grip afresh on this subject so as to glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.